If you would now please take a copy of God's Word and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians and we'll look at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 this morning and we will be thinking about Christ's Advent. We are in what's uh, become tradition to celebrate Advent season, but this is the second Advent uh, I bring us to this morning. I do you want to greet those who are streaming our service online and also uh, friends in the fellowship hall? Thank you for being in there. This is the season of warm and fuzzies, of crackling fires, Christmas decorations, and for Christians, um, it is the time when we do often remind ourselves and direct our gaze and direct our hearts towards remembering and considering the incarnation. And it's putting Christ's advent before us that separates the Christian celebration of Christmas from others. It's not mere sentimentalism for us. And it's his advent that has brought us hope. And it's the second advent that ensures and completes the picture of our hope for us. The advent that has come, his first coming, we remember and in Christmas time, it also points us towards his returning. And so that's why I chose our passage uh, this morning. Before we read it, before we consider God's word and feed on it this morning, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help again. Would you join me in prayer? A great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to sit under your word that it might inform and conform our thinking in order that it would strengthen our faith and that we would live for your glory. We pray that you would be exalted in the reading and preaching of your word and that you would give us, your people, illumination into our understanding of the truth according to your spirit working among us. That Christ would be glorified and that we would grow in your grace. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. We find ourselves in the Advent gap between the first Advent, the first coming of Christ, and his returning, the second Advent. It makes me think of the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then, verse 7, Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Do you see the advent gap, the already and the not yet that is there in Isaiah's words? The son has been given. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. We know who that is and he has come. And he is reigning as the ascended Lord from heaven now. But the fullness of his kingdom, the fullness of his reign is not yet evident in the earth, but it will be one day. We live between the times. And our passage here from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, here it helps us live in that gap because it shows us the link between what was accomplished in his first advent and its fulfillment in his second. In his first, he secured our redemption. And at the second, we receive it in full. And so our passage today, it, it breaks into two sections, but they are related. They're speaking of the same event. And so we begin with the first part we will consider in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 4, the descent from heaven. And then in verses 1 through 11, the day of the Lord, 1 through 11 of chapter 5. The descent from heaven, which is the blessed hope of the believer, begins with dealing with the dead in Christ. I begin here this morning because we know that we have brothers and sisters who this will be the first Christmas without a loved one, a relative, a friend who has lost someone. Or maybe it's the second or third, or maybe it's the 30th. And there is a need of a reminder of what has happened 
to those who have died in Christ. And that's where Paul comes here. Here in verse 13, he tells the church, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Here is a church that is dealing and it most likely is reeling from the emotional shock of losing someone. They know what their first pastor, the the Apostle Paul, taught them about salvation and about eternal life. They have confessed and professed that. But now it's being tested. Because someone, most likely someone in this congregation, has died. They know that Jesus will return, but they are struggling to bring their faith and their emotions together. And here the Apostle Paul takes the teaching of the second coming and what awaits the church to answer the problem of bereavement. In verse 13, the first thing to observe is that grief is not prohibited for the Christian, but it is to be distinct from others. Coming to Christ does not mean that we will be immune from bad things happening to us and the ones that we love. It doesn't mean that we'll be immune and sheltered from the experience of genuine sadness and loss. Many of you know that. But what is different is that he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. And so that you don't grieve like those around you. Now, there would have been different understandings in the the pagan world of of Paul's day and the Thessalonians' day of, of the afterlife. Some would have said, the only thing that lives on when someone dies is their memory. And their answer to grief was, get over it. This is what happens. Others would have had some sense of the, the, the Greek mythology and the underworld and passing on. But even that was just some attempt to explain what happens to the soul when the body dies. It offered no hope, no comfort. But here he says, Christians, in the midst of your deep sadness, inform it with God's truth and inform it about Christ's return. So grief is not prohibited, but it must stand in the light of hope, informed by hope, shaped by hope. So what is the hope? Verse 14, he lays it out for us. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The hope is that those who have died in Christ remain in Christ, and they're still united to him. And that though their soul is separated from their body, they know the blessed presence of God even now. And that one day, just as Christ's soul was reunited with his body, they too will receive a glorified body and have a glorious reunion. The hope is that Christ has conquered death 
And that conquering will be evident for all those who trust in him. And so therefore, though it would have been others in the ancient world who would have used the, the euphemism for death as sleeping, Christians, it, it, it took on a special meaning in light of the resurrection. That all Christians will one day awake again. But the question may be, well, what about those who've gone on to be with Christ? When Christ returns and his grand victory is evident to the entire world, there, the angels told the apostles in Acts chapter 1 that Christ left on the clouds. And here we see he returns on the clouds. What about those whose bodies are in the grave? Will they be at a disadvantage? Will they be at a lesser experience of the, that great and grand, grand and glorious day? Well, the, the apostle says, we have a word from the Lord that they, they won't be. That those of us who are alive on that day that the joy and euphoria we would experience that those who've died and gone on to be with the Lord will also partake in the grand celebration. The word of the Lord in verse 15, he says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, what is that word of the Lord? Was this something that the, the apostle has said that the Lord has disclosed to him in his office and role as an apostle? Was it part of uh, something that was left out on their discussion on the road to uh, Damascus when he met the risen Lord and was converted and called to his apostleship? Well, if we were to, to take them and, and put them next to each other parallel, we would see that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 through chapter 5, verse 7, and Matthew chapter 24 Verses 30 through 49, Jesus' teaching about his return and the judgment share 13 parallel concepts. And we won't look at all of those today because I'm told that, Lord willing, before Christ returns on Sunday morning, we will get to Matthew chapter 24. Got good word on it from Pastor Jason in the first service. 13 parallels. So what we see here, Paul is drawing from what Christ taught. But he's doing so to illuminate the, the, the church in their time of great sorrow and press at home. And so he draws out four things from the return of the Lord that Christ himself taught. The first is that he would return in verse 16, the beginning opening phrase, 16a. And that return would be a descent from heaven. It's his second descent. He descended once into the womb of the Virgin Mary, and here he will descend as the conquering king. The coming of the Lord, the, the Greek word behind that translation is parousia. And it has a, a particular meaning in ancient Greek texts. It's, it's used in two ways. It's the, the coming of a hidden divinity who makes his presence known in power. And so it's, a, it's an event in which uh, a theophonic, a theophany event in which God is revealed in power. And it is also used for when a visiting king comes, an emperor comes and arrives and the 
the pomp and the circumstance and the, the celebration that would accompany us, the parousia, the coming. And the Apostle Paul begins with saying, when King Jesus comes in that way, this is what's going to happen. That's the first thing. And then what's the second thing that identifies? In the second half of verse 16, well, there, there will be a resurrection. That Jesus comes and it's a great noise. There's the cry of the command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. What is the command that is coming forth at his return? It is Christ himself commanding dead Christians to come up from the grave. Consider that. Some are at the bottom of the ocean. Some are in ashes. Some in mausoleums. Some in the ground. In Christ, the King of kings and Lords of lords, breaks the sky, commanding that they come from their graves, wherever that may be. The Shorter Catechism in question 38 says, at the resurrection, believers raised in glory will be publicly recognized and declared not guilty on the day of judgment and will be made completely happy in the full enjoyment of God forever. It's a martial sound. It's not just the command of the Lord. It's a warlike victory cry. It says the, the, the archangel, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. And whether this is three different noises or it's one way describing the one sound that is heard at Christ's return, it is clear that this is a victory cry. The archangels who've been for thousands upon thousands of years waging spiritual warfare now comes celebrating the victory of the Lamb. The trumpet that accompanies the victors in battle now sounds for all to hear. This revelation of the victory of Jesus, it's delayed. We see it, know it now by faith and experience it in the new birth, but it is coming in a way that will be undeniable. His delayed victory will be pressed upon all of humanity. At the cross, he cries, it is finished. And what he finished there now is the cry of Jesus calling to those who died in Christ to join him in the air. And that's what we see in the beginning of verse 17. That Christians are caught up, the resurrected, and those who are alive are caught up together with Christ. We see here, this is where the Bible does teach that there would be a rapture. Now here in the ESV translation, it's the, the Greek word harpazo is translated caught up together. In Latin, there is the word repair to seize, and that's where the language of rapture has come into uh, Christian dialogue and discussion um, in the last couple centuries. The, the Greek word means to be swept up, to be snatched up. There will be an encounter in the air with the Lord. But where the discussion is going is people wonder, well, where, where do they go from there? Well, what's 
maybe a little bit veiled to us in, in English. It says, well, they, they meet the Lord in the air. They're caught up there in verse 17. The Thessalonians, they would understand exactly what the Apostle Paul meant by the word he used for meet. It wasn't just a, a running into each other or a meeting place. But the word that he uses there is when a delegation leaves a city because a dignitary has come. And it's a party that goes out to meet him and then usher him back. It is a one coming. It is not a secret coming. It is something for the whole world to see. And Christians meet him in the air and then they welcome him back. They go out to bestow honor on the visitor and then escort him back to the city. The rapture then is with, of a party that goes out and says, come back with us. This is not a picture of a, a secret rapture. And it's not of a, a catching away to some spiritual realm. It is a coming to see the fulfillment of his kingdom. And then there is the reunion, the second half of verse 17. The encounter in the clouds, the return, is the beginning of everlasting fellowship between the king and his people. And Paul would tell us in other passages in 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, that those who meet him in the air the dead in Christ receive their glorified body and those who are alive, they are changed. Their lowly bodies are transformed in that moment and receive a glorious body as they usher Christ as the consummation has come. The royal coming of King Jesus, the church goes out to meet him, the dead in Christ leading the way. There in verse 18 it says, therefore encourage one another with these words. The second coming of Christ does not lead us to speculation. It leads us to a sure and blessed hope with what's been revealed by Christ and taught by the apostles. And it's meant specifically to apply to the sadness of loss and loved ones of believers. 19th century pastor, you remember just decades ago, and especially within the last couple hundred years, the infant mortality rate was tragic and hard and just a part of life. There's a 19th century pastor who buried many of his kids young, very young in age. And as they were burying one next to another, they looked down and him and his wife and they saw a lock of hair from one of the previous kids. And he reached into the hole and pulled it out. And his wife said, what are you doing? And he said, this is a token of the resurrection. Saying that the child has died in Christ and we will see this child again. Some of you, you haven't seen a loved one in months, weeks, maybe 30 years. And we're to encourage one another that if they died in Christ, they are still united to him. And they will know the fullness of his victory as you and I will too. 
But the encouragement is not just that reunion. That we will see loved ones again. The encouragement is that we will see Christ. The one whom we have not seen with our physical eyes. And having been reunited to him. Seeing the full realization of his kingdom. Our blessed savior. The one who died and rose again on our behalf. It's not just the reunion of lost brothers and sisters in Christ. It is seeing him himself that we are to in between his first advent and his second advent to say here is our hope. Let it inform our sadness. The true king is coming. But when he comes, it will not be comfort and encouragement and celebration and joy for all. No, there, it will be a day of dread and terror for others. And that's where the beginning of chapter 5, the first 11 verses, the Apostle Paul addresses that day, the day of the Lord. And on the day of the Lord, we see the destruction of darkness. And there is a, a shift in the tone of, of the letter at this point. From consolation to a church that is so emotionally shocked that they need to align their profession with their experience to now there is a, a, a note for the believers to be prepared. Reminding them that on that day, it will be a day of judgment for those who are outside Christ's kingdom. And there in verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Throughout the scriptures, the, the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord. And sometimes it's a day of reckoning and sometimes it's a day of vindication. Sometimes it's a day of destruction and sometimes it's a day of deliverance. And there's a sense in which throughout scriptures there was many days of the Lord that have come, but they were all pointing to the final day. And it's in the final day and it's here that we see in this, this picture that Paul has painted for the Thessalonians of joy and celebration of Christ the King and then the sudden destruction of the unbeliever. We see the day of the Lord rightly understood is fulfilled in Christ's second coming. Now in this section, there's, there's three conjunctions that, that kind of give us the outline of how to work through these 11 verses. And the first one there in verse 1, now, and then he goes on to the verse 3. He talks about the suddenness of the day of the Lord. And he reminds the believers that the wrong approach is to try to figure out the exact date on the calendar. And he kind of basically is setting the stage that we live with a certain agnosticism about the actual moment day, but that doesn't mean that we're not prepared. That's what he wants to teach them. In verse 2, he lays out there's an, an irony you know that you don't know. So don't fret over it. Now he's not saying that there won't be a sign of the Lord's coming. And he then goes on to the, the Thessalonians. They receive this letter and then they send back correspondence to Paul. And they say, that was helpful. We have more questions. And so then he answers some of their questions. And he points to some, here are some of the signs. But even those signs do not give us a, a timetable in such a way that I can pull out a chart and say, it's going to happen on this day. I wrote a book about it. Everyone buy my book. Because that's happened before in 
well, the Lord didn't come back in 1989 or 1999 or, and so on and so on. And you could, you could find those. And that's not his point. His point is to press home the two metaphors that Jesus gave his disciples about the day of the Lord, his returning, the judgment. It's the picture of the thief in the night comes sudden and unexpected without warning. If you knew a thief was coming, you'd prepare. He said there, the lost won't be prepared. It speaks of labor pains, birth pangs, labor pains. What's coming is sudden and unavoidable. That once things are set in motion, there's no turning back. There's no escape. But it's not for the believers to threat. It's for those who are proclaiming peace and security. There would be those who would say that we have made our way towards utopia. We are making the world as it should be. And to those, he says, who proclaim peace and security, watch out. Sudden destruction, because it is a peace and security that is not under the reign of King Jesus, but under the rulers of this world. See, in our English translation, it's very helpful that the, the translators put that phrase, peace and security, in quotation marks, because they're pointing out something to us, that this was a, a particular phrase, loaded words, in Paul's day. It was loaded words, politically weighty words, in the Roman Empire, which the Thessalonians are. It's imperial rhetoric, propaganda. It was on coins, it was on statues, it was on many different inscriptions. It was the declaration of the Pax Romana that the empire has brought peace and security wherever it spread. And here, the Apostle Paul is critiquing that propaganda and he says, as you look towards the day of the Lord, be clear, know what empire you belong to, know what kingdom you belong to, know which king you were hoping, hoping in. The imperial cult, the cult of the Caesar, was an eschatological institution. The emperor was proclaimed as divine and was bringing the earth to its final form of peace and security. And it's in that context that the, the apostle says, when everyone's saying that, all of a sudden, he comes in sudden destruction. It's the suddenness of the Tower of Babel that let us make a, a, a tower to heaven. Let us make a, we don't need God. Look what we can do when we all work together. And then in a moment, the languages are confused. But this is not merely the judgment of chaotic languages and the confusion that followed, but this is the immediate reckoning of the judgment day. And this is to be a particular comfort for the Thessalonians because while Rome is proclaiming peace and security, they're experiencing persecution. It could be very well that the person whom they've lost have, has been lost because of persecution. There, in, earlier in the letter, in, 
in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. They weren't experiencing the the Pax Romana. They received the word in affliction, but with joy in the Holy Spirit. Their peace and security was not from the emperor and not from Caesar. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And what was it that their fellow believers in Judea suffered? Well, they, they suffered persecution. Paul, went, at one point, was a zealous for that persecution. Some of them suffered martyrdom. And in that context, the apostle reminds them of their subversive witness that they have. Of saying that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Those words, parousia, and the, the, the meeting of, of bringing a dignitary in, he's, saying, he's pointing them to that and saying, live in light of that. Don't be seduced by any promise of peace and security outside of Christ as king. And maintain your subversive witness until the whole world knows. Then in verses 4 through 8, he then builds out what does that preparation look like? He, he paints a picture of the contrast between those who are prepared for the day of the Lord and those who aren't. And the contrast comes down to, to the image of night and day. That they are to be of the day and not of the night. And what happens at night? Well, there's Darkness, sleeping, and drunkenness. He says, this is what those who are uninformed live like. They don't have any real hope in their grief. And they waste away the time that they have sleeping, drunk, and in the darkness. But this is not how the believers are called to live. They are called to live prepared, patient lives. It's pointing to intellectual and moral preparation intellectual and moral preparation that they are to identify as children of the light, there it says in the passage. In, in Hebrew, the children of and then fill the blank of is an idiom. It's used sometimes for good things and sometimes for bad things. And then here he's saying, this is who you are in the midst of the darkness. You are of the light. It's both telling them of, reminding them of their identity, but then also instructing them on how to live. Because in Scripture, it, it speaks of the, the, the sinful things we do in the darkness. And so because we're of the light, aim to then orient and live your life in such a way that there's nothing to hide as you're pursuing Christ. They are to, to live alert lives, sober lives. Sober lives, that they are not to become intoxicated with the passing pleasures of this life, especially the fleeting pleasures of sin, but even the common grace good things that we still experience in a fallen world. Enjoy them, enjoy them in moderation, whether it be sport, food, drink, holidays, whatever it is. It cannot become the thing that consumes us. And we become drunk on them. 
distracted, pulled away from our devotion and our allegiance to our king. And so it's, don't live in the darkness. You are of the light. Don't live drunk. Remain sober and alert. And in summary, put on the armor of God. Here he references putting on a breastplate and a helmet. This is recalling what we see in Isaiah 59 and then later what the apostle Paul would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. But here he highlights the, the great triad that is in 1 Corinthians 13 that what does it look like to live in the day and to live alert? It's to live lives of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Knowing you belong to the light and understanding what age you belong to. But as that dreadful day comes, he leaves the believers with, with gospel assurance of their fate on that day. In verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For them to survive the day of the Lord, it will require faithfulness. But ultimately, their faithfulness is proceeded on and is built upon the Lord's appointment, election, saving of his people. That he has not destined them for wrath. And how can they be certain? It's because they are in Christ Jesus. And in verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He came and died in his place for his people. And that is our confidence on the day of the Lord. As we seek to live as people of the light, as we seek to be on guard against the darkness and to oppose it, we'll stumble, we'll fail. We will have the times when our emotions do not match our profession. And we need one another to encourage one another, to press in on one another the truth of these words. But ultimately, our confidence is in the one who died for us. It's not just that he came, God, with us, but that God came and lived with us and died for us. The cross is at the center of our confidence on the day of the Lord, and there is no other place to look for confidence on the day of the Lord. And there would be no encouragement of, of his return if there is no cross, because we'd all stand guilty under his judgment. And so, ask yourself today, on that day, will you be found under his wrath or under his mercy? Will you be found in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Are you of the day or are you of the night? Are you watching for his return or is your hope in this world, this life? And you're going to be surprised by the great destruction. If you were, would answer and say, I'm under his wrath, he has not returned yet and he is welcoming enemies and rebels into his kingdom still. Call to him. Ask for his mercy.
in verse 18 of chapter 4 and then the closing of verse 11, he gives them instructions. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. Chapter 5, verse 11. The, the tenor of the apostle as he has hard things to say about the day to come is that for believers then we're to build one another up with these things. It's for our strengthening. It's for our edifying. We're painted a, a very clear picture of what we're supposed to do with this. We're supposed to apply it and mutual support, comfort to one another. When we feel overwhelmed by the sadness and when we're discouraged by the darkness, we are to look to these words. And when we see our brothers and sisters in that condition, we are to bring these words to bear upon their hearts and minds. In his first descent, he humbly arrived in a manger to secure redemption for his people once and for all. In his second descent, he victoriously returns on the clouds to banish the darkness once and for all. Amen. And let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our great God, we do long for the day of the Lord because Christ has come and he has died in our place and he has borne the wrath that we deserve. Our great and blessed hope is seeing him face to face. Because he has risen, we profess and believe that we too will rise with him again and be with him for all eternity. Pray, Lord, that considering your second advent would be a special comfort to those in pain and suffering and grieving right now. That their hope will be fixed on Christ and not in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.